um, not something to take lightly. Okay. The text today is going to be quite fun. Um, the text today, uh, I have, it's funny when, as a preacher, you like to listen to other preachers preach texts. And then every once in a while you come to a text that there are very few examples of it being preached. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> this, is, this being one of them, unfortunately, is one that, um, if you've heard a sermon on it, excellent, I'm, I'm glad for you. So we're going to work through this text. Um, you're going to go, well, what relevance does this have for me today? And that's a very good question. That's, that's a, a critical question that we should ask in any text that we approach, whether it has a foreign word that seems dismissed from our current culture in which we specifically live in, or whether it's a, it's a verse like last week where he's talking about wives and husbands and all that, because that one's easy to go, well, how does this relate to me? Well, I'm a wife, and this is what, or I have a wife, or I want to be a wife, or I want to be a husband, so this verse applies to me in this way. Uh, so it's good to ask, what relevance does that have for us? But it's good for us to ask, what relevance does this have for us today? Um, lastly, I think your um, chapter division there is unfortunate. Um, the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, really does go with the previous chapter. That was that, I mean, if you, most of your Bibles probably have verse 1, and then they have like a section header, maybe like further instructions starting at verse 2. Um, so what it is is someone decided to put a num- big number 4 right there, and then later someone goes, that was stupid, and then they put a section heading uh, a little bit later. So uh, the section heading is probably a little bit of a better division there for you. So that's why it's 322 through chapter 4, verse 1. So... As we've already read, this chapter deals with slavery, and I want to kind of give you some background. So what we're going to do, we'll give you some background to the text and kind of a little bit more of what's going on here. Then we're going to address the problem, uh, or the apparent problem of slavery here in the text, and then we're going to work through its application and relevance for us today. So with that said, first of all, you need to understand that Onesimus was one of the two men who brought the letter from Paul in Rome to the church in Colossae. So there's Tychicus, Tychicus, however you want to pronounce his name, and then uh, uh, Onesimus. Um, One thing to know about Onesimus is that he was a slave who sometime earlier had run away from his master in Colossae. Um, He later then came to faith in Christ through meeting Paul in prison. You can look at that in Philemon verse 10. Uh, But later became a Christian, and he now had come back to Colossae with the letter and the intention of returning to his master. So this, I mean, this is... This is not metaphorical here. Like, Paul's talking about slavery. This is not some distant example that Paul... I mean, Paul is literally addressing slaves. This is not symbolism here. Paul's addressing slaves. And then begins the questions, well, what does relevance does this have for me? And, and again, we will get to that. So his master, who was his master? His master was Philemon. Uh, his master is Philemon. Um, there's actually, I, th- I believe, good reason to think that when this letter was first read, that it was to the gathered believers in Colossae in Philemon's house. And I think Philemon would have been there. It was his house. Onesimus would have been there. The slave, the master, the slave master, Philemon. Um, So I think it's just interesting to think that most likely when this was read, again, that you have a slave in the mix, and, and probably even multiple slaves, but we'll just leave it. We know for sure a slave, and then... Uh, his master Philemon. Um, obviously, what happens then is this creates, I think, an awkward situation for us today. Now, speaking specifically to American culture, what we are, this may be a little different in other cultures, but this is a very awkward. I think perhaps there is no part of the letter that is more difficult for us to hear now uh, as the Word of God than this text. Um, 
It's the problem of slavery. And, and here, here's the deal. Some of us may read this and go, aha, okay, good to go. And then other of us may, may go, oh, man, that's kind of it's a little rough. What, what's going on here? And, and here's the deal. There is a level of which we should approach the text of general trust and such that we're going to talk about, but there is a level which we should approach the text um, critically. Like, not critically as in, I'm going to put down the text, but as in, I want to spend the time, I need to spend the time to really think through what does this text say, what does it mean, how does it apply. Okay, we can't act super spiritual and go, oh, well, okay, it, it could go. Being spiritual with the text is saying, God, I want to think, I want to understand this. I want to think through this. Um, the other is called laziness. So, there's a problem. And, and let me say this, the Bible often offends the moral sensibilities of almost all of its readers today, at least at some point. Our moral thinking is often offended. Slavery is not the only point at which Scripture, I think, does this. Uh, for many believers, this issue in Scripture is a source of embarrassment. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys, if this passage is a source of embarrassment, for some people it is. Uh, many today use this to support arguments for other behaviors that are accepted culturally today. So, what? And, and see, and this is part of where we have to think through this text. Because there's application of it beyond even the idea of slavery. So, for instance, uh, women's roles, homosexuality. Let's go down the homosexuality role uh, or the path for a moment. What they tend to do with this passage is, is people will say, okay, when we get to Colossians 3 and we get to this slaves thing, what we see is that the writer, in his culture during that day, slavery was acceptable. And culturally, slavery just hadn't been abolished like it should have been. And so the writer was in error when he wrote about slavery. He just didn't know it. Okay? Now let's just take that a step further. So now our culture has evolved to the point where homosexuality is acceptable, becoming acceptable. Um, the new show by the writers of Glee... Uh, one of the pair on there is blatantly homosexual. Uh, I forget the, the New Modern or something like that is the name of the movie. It's on NBC. For new me the show. <clears throat> but people's argument then is, okay, well, those writers, they were right for their time period. And now that our culture has matured enough to discover that homosexuality is acceptable... We don't have to listen to that part of the text because they just didn't know it. So, I, I, think, I think, honestly, if we think about this, there's, there's a certain attraction and persuasiveness to that line of reasoning. Let me just think about this for a moment. It's not a matter of condemning the Bible writers, right? They were just doing what was acceptable for their culture. They were, they were people of their times, right? They were not disconnected from their current culture, I mean, we cannot pretend that the Bible is an a, a or a historical book. It, it is a historical document. It was written in a time period at a very specific moment in time. It's very historical. Even in this point, there is a master and a slave listening to the reading of this book. And so it's easy for us in this vein of thinking to think, well, that was then and this is now. That was their culture. This is our culture. And this is why it's critical for us to think through this as our culture changes untethered to God's Word. Why do we stand on the beliefs that we have? How do, we, how do you get to that belief? Um, so, let's address the problem. Address the problem. Point number one, we need to see that the thinking here is hugely problematic. The thinking here is hugely problem. Not the thinking of the text, but the thinking upon the text. Okay, so not what the text is trying to convey. That's not problematic. 
What's problematic is how the text is being approached if that's the conclusion that we're going to come up with, that, that the culture is just, that it just hasn't advanced, and so the writers somehow got it wrong. So here's the point. To, to judge the Scriptures by the standards and values of our culture, the understandings of our historical moment is an inexcusable arrogance. You hear me? For us, and see, again, we've got to connect these things. This goes beyond just this text. We often approach the text and superimpose our culture and our understandings upon the text and come away with a very wrong meaning. So it's not just here, but it's beyond. But, so when we, though, take... Well, let me back up. Oftentimes, I think we do that not on purpose. At least those in this room. And I, I do this sometimes, too. I approach the text with my moral understandings, cultural understandings, and try and superimpose it. And we call that eisegeting the text. So you're kind of forcing something into the text instead of just trying to pull out the meaning of the text. So you're trying to get out the meaning, but you're doing that by trying to force something else into the text. So we want to be careful that we don't do that. But if we're purposefully taking our culture and using that to define what the text means, that's arrogance. We have no right to do that. So basically, it means that you refuse to allow these scriptures to critique your times and culture. And this is where our culture, our culture today wants to take our culture and use that to critique scripture rather than let scripture critique our culture. And that's arrogance. So, second point. To the subject of slavery, rather than being the test case that proves the Bible's limitations... It is a very good test case for Christians today. I think this text, it comes down to this question. Will we humbly listen to the Word of God with confident expectation of its thorough goodness? I think that's the test case here. When we get to this text, do we, do we sit there with confident expectation that God is thoroughly good and has thoroughly and in, in, in a holy way revealed himself in the word. That the word is good. We should know if we find it hard to see God's word as good, it's because we have misunderstood it or because of a mistaken moral framework that we are carrying around with us. So always approach the text going expecting, knowing that it is God is good and that it is inerrant and infallible. And so where am I misunderstanding this at? Now, it doesn't just stop there. We don't just go, okay, well, it's God's Word and, and that's, that's it. No, we need to seek to understand it. Seek to, okay, well, what's going on here? Maybe I'm mistaken something. Maybe I have something wrong here. Number three, we have to admit, though, that the case of slavery is difficult. We have to notice that there is nowhere in the New Testament that slavery is endorsed. We also have to recognize that there's nowhere in the New Testament that slavery is condemned. As opposed to marriage, which the Bible clearly establishes and endorses. Number four, there is some baggage that almost every hearer of these texts today brings with them that contributes to the problem. Let's talk about this for just a brief moment. When we think of slavery, most of us think of 19th century slavery in the United States, right? I mean, it's what I think of. Race-based slavery dependent upon appalling slave trade. This was often practiced with terrible cruelty. This shameful institution was obviously eventually abolished. Now, the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 1, does condemn slave trading. But it is a mistake to think that the slavery in Colossians 3 is the same of 19th century American slavery. In Colossians 3, 
these would have been domestic slaves serving within a, a household. Um, historically, they say there was some 80 to 90 percent of the inhabitants of Rome were either slaves or former slaves. That's huge. Um, slavery at this point was not race-based. Slaves were usually prisoners of war, although a person could sell themselves into slavery. Slaves had certain rights underneath Roman law. That's, that's a big difference between slavery and 19th century United States. There were various ways in which a slave could gain freedom. That's not possible in 19th century. In some cases, they could even expect freedom after seven years. And Roman law dictated that they could expect to be set free at least by the age of 30. So being a slave was certainly not a preferable state of life, but we ought to understand the historical context of the Bible's words. We must be careful to not read into them a situation they were not addressing. Okay, Paul was not addressing 19th century American slavery. He was addressing 1st, 2nd century Roman slavery, which is substantially different. Number five, we are left with the conclusion that the Bible does not directly condemn or demand the overthrow of the institution of slavery as it was practiced in places like Colossae. So here's a key thought for us. Therefore, the word addressed to slaves and masters actually challenges my ideas of freedom and perhaps even of human rights. Notice something very specific in that phrase. I want him to leave it up there. That I said my ideas. Your ideas. Not freedom and human rights themselves. Does that make sense? There's a difference. My ideas. Your ideas. The text actually challenges those things, those ideas that we have. God, however, has set us free from the domain of darkness. He has brought us in the kingdom of His beloved Son. He redeemed us. He has forgiven us of all of our trespasses. And the question is this, how does Christ, who has reconciled all things in heaven and on earth to Himself by making peace by the blood of His cross, redeem a slave? That's our question for today. How does Christ redeem a master of a slave? How does the person who is a slave and the one who is a master experience the good order, redemption, and freedom that Christ brings? We're getting to the heart of the text. The proposition stated as a question. Could it be, could it be that there is a redemption and a freedom that is authentic and real, yet not dependent on the ideas of independence, liberty, and autonomy that seem to matter so much to us today. Let's just read that again. Could it be that God's Word actually teaches something that would correct our understanding of it today. Could it be that there is a redemption and a freedom that is authentic and real, yet not dependent on the ideas of independence, liberty, and autonomy that seem to matter so much to us today? You can see this in marriage, women's roles, homosexuality. I mean, you see this across the board. Is there something... Does the Bible define it differently than our brilliant minds define it? Is really the question. Our arrogant, brilliant minds define it. Colossians 3.22, let's read it again. Bondservants or slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants or slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. First thing that we need to see in this text, and understand that we're, we're, 
we have to address the fact that Paul is addressing specifically slaves in order to be, uh, to, to be honest, to be, uh, have integrity when we approach the text, but then there's application to that for us today. So understand as we work through this, there's kind of a, uh, I don't even know how to explain it, but basically we're going to talk about what a slave, what Paul is telling the slave to do, but understand we could basically substitute us into that text. Does that make sense? So we're going to talk about the slave, but we talk about how our responsibility, how these apply to us. So the first point is this, we are called to a new obedience. We are called to a new obedience. He says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Notice again that in the crowd there were slaves. Notice that Paul had given thanks to this crowd, that Paul had prayed for this crowd, that Onesimus was not, probably not the only slave present, but Paul addresses the slaves directly here. Um, I'll tell you what's interesting as a side note is, is that the fellowship of believers was distinctive in that there were slaves and masters present in the same home, worshiping the same God, being addressed at the same time, being addressed on equal playing field. Um, this would not happen anywhere else in Roman culture. So the slaves were fully recognized, were fully acknowledged, fully regarded as responsible for their own conduct. This is Paul acknowledging these slaves as equal before the throne of God. Second thing underneath this new, or the first thing underneath this new obedience is that we must obey in everything. We must obey in everything. Slaves were to obey in everything that their masters required. Here's something I think is interesting. Paul is not interested in exploring the reasonable questions as to what limits there might be to this obedience. Any more than he does for children or wives in submission in the passage before. Does Paul explore the limitations of that? He doesn't. And he doesn't for the slave either. This does not mean that there would be no limit. It's just not Paul's concern. His point is to set their obedience in a whole new context that radically changes their situation. So, So Paul is not concerned so much about setting this checklist, if you will, that... My servitude looks great when it looks like this, 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 and this. But Paul is setting a new context for them to serve in. Just like before, Paul's concerned about a new heart that transforms everything out of it. Rather than, here's your checklist, and as long as you get these things, you're good to go. Paul does the same thing with the slave. He's not concerned about the limitations of this obedience. He's worried about the framework in which he operates as a servant. This is so, I mean, again, crucial for us today. We want to get a checklist. We want to do these things, this and this right and this right, and, and we never get to the root of it, and we never build a framework from which we operate in. That or we have a framework. It's just not the right one. So, Paul is building this framework for, as he has been building, he's building it here again for the slaves. Next, uh, our obedience to our earthly allegiances is not com- compromised by having Christ as Lord. Our earthly are not compromised. Yeah. Their masters, Paul tells them, are only your earthly lords. Slaves no longer live in fear of their masters. They are only lords according to the flesh. Who's the ultimate Lord? You can answer this. Who's the ultimate Lord? Come on. Who? God. Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus. This is 
I mean, there's an important point here. It's easy for us as Christians, this is what I prayed about earlier, it's easy for us to think that our allegiance to Christ somehow overrides our earthly allegiances. It is not unusual to feel that my allegiance to Christ somehow loosens my allegiances to mere humans in this world. I mean, think about that. I mean, some of us are thinking, no, 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 just back up a second. Isn't it easy to think, oh, that's my God, and I owe my allegiance to Him because He's Almighty God. You're just a man. And my allegiance to you is like this compared to my allegiance to God. Now, I don't think that our relationship with Christ compromises our allegiance to our human brothers and sisters. I mean, Paul clearly says it doesn't. The extreme case of slavery, I think, is a challenge to this understanding of the relationship between the Lordship of Christ and merely earthly obligations. If you're a slave, your obedience to your master is not compromised by having Christ as Lord. Now, I mean, we have to address something very short here. Obviously, when God calls us to do something according to His Word, and it's objective, specific, He says to do this, and the government tells us to do something different, yes, our allegiance is first to God. But, our relationship with Christ does not lighten our allegiance and our loyalty to what God has called us to do here on earth. And for the slave... It's as a slave. Do you understand? Like, I think Paul uses this as, as an intense example. Because if there was anything that we would, not, uh, 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 we would not need to show allegiance to, it would be for a slave to show allegiance to his master. If there was anything in this world that, that we would not have to f- uh, follow through with our commitment, it would be a slave to his master. But instead, Paul says, to be obedient in everything, even to a slave. How much more so to those of us who get paid? For those of us who get compensated for our work. How much more is our allegiance and obedience due to our supervisors, to our leaders, to our masters? Are you seeing the but Paul, Paul has set up a great argument here for us. So if you're a slave, your obedience, again, is to your master, is not compromised by having Christ as Lord. On the contrary, your relationship to your master is put to good order. It is, as we have said in the last passage, it is redeemed. It is redeemed. It is, there's redemption. Meaning the order is set to its proper place. We're going to untangle that a little bit more as we go. Next, he says, your obedience is not now by way of eye service. So, this word for eye service is a literal translation of a Greek compound word that includes the slave word, eye slavery. I hyphen slavery. You serve as a slave, not just to be seen to be serving, but you, and you do not serve and be obedient in order to be seen as obedient. The quality of your obedience then would depend on whether you were being watched. Do you see the application for this today? I, I, it's all over. God, our responsibility is to be obedient to everything. I mean, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I just have to stop for a moment. Whether it's at work, it's in the home, it's in church, it's in friendships, there's application for us here all over the place. Our obedience to what God has called us to do is crucial. It's so crucial that we, it should not matter whether anyone sees it. We should not do it to appear as obedient. It should not matter whether you're being watched or not. And we're going to talk about rewards in a few moments. But 
Your work now is not as people pleasers. Your obedience is now with sincerity of heart. I think a better understanding of sincerity of heart is with singleness of heart. With singleness of heart. There is a singleness to which your heart is beating to, to accomplish this obedience. There's a singleness. There's a, a oneness there. There's a, a loyalty to one purpose, one reason. There's a singleness of heart. It is not... It is simply not the case that your allegiance to Christ pulls one way and your earthly obligations pull another. I think the Lord here is reordering the universe and that does not pull us out of our earthly relationships. But instead calls us to live in those relationships under Him, fearing the Lord. So again, workplace, school, church, home life, every aspect of your life. Paul says next, do your work in a way that honors God. Fear and reverence. Before we move on, I, I, I want to be, be honest um, with you guys. Um, our, our church, and I'm speaking generally here, okay, struggles often with this. Now, here let me say as, before I before I move forward with this. Our um, some of you these next few comments are going to be encouraging because you're going to go, man. I'm doing that. If some of you are going to go, yeah, he just he just offended me, <laughs> uh, and that's okay as well. Uh, it, it's the text. It, it's me saying based upon our fruits, I think this is something we struggle with. And let me, let me just tell you, as a leader, particularly of a volunteer-driven institution, there are so many lines here that, that they're just like this, right? Uh, and how does this work? How does this work? As a leader of people who volunteer their time, how does that work? Let me tell you how it works in a typical church. It, it looks like this. Well, I, I don't want to really, you know, ask you to really do anything um, and, and then, and then, when that, if you do commit to it, and you don't fulfill your commitment, there's no accountability for it, because oh well, they're just you know they're just volunteers. Was this slave being paid for his work? Now we can't say he was. Uh, well, well, in some cases, we can say he volunteered. Some slaves voluntarily went into slavery. Does Paul set up a different set of expectations for the volunteer crowd versus the crowd getting paid? Does he do that here? Anybody? No. There is no difference of expectations. And so, and so I, it's, it's funny, because just in as Renovation Church has grown, and spiritually grown and stuff. I've had multiple conversations with different, and particularly other leaders, and they're going, well, how do we, how do we deal with things? Like when, when people are supposed to do things and they don't fulfill, but, but they're just volunteers and this isn't their full-time job, and how do we deal with that? And, and honestly, I had not gotten to this text, but from other texts, my conviction has been there is no difference. There is no difference. Now, we're not asking them to give 60 hours a week like their job is asking them to give, but... That, that's a difference. But the expectation of commitment is still the same. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. If I say I'm going to be there, be there. Make sacrifices. Do what it takes. And So, I, I think there is plenty of room for all of us to grow in this area. And, and, and on, guys, understand, I don't know every detail of every situation and I'm not going to pretend to know that. But you settle that with God. God makes no difference. There is no, different, uh, uh, no distinction between the paid crowd and the unpaid. If anything, Paul uses that slave, I think, to press the issue harder. He's saying, this person isn't getting paid, and I demand this of him. To be obedient in everything. 
to carry out everything he has said to do. That he is your master. So, with that, you know, don't get mad at me. The text, I think, addresses this issue for us. Um, I, I've seen examples where we in our church like to differentiate between, well, this is my volunteer things I'm doing at the church, and this is my job. God would draw no distinction. If you say you're going to do this, do it. If you say you're going to do this, do it. Keep your word. So, do your work in a way that honors God. Next main point, we are free to work for the Lord. And I really, this is where I think the text really takes us to a, a whole new level. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. So the obedience of the slave is now generalized, and the radical new way of life is filled out. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. This is an echo of something. Look at verse 17 in chapter 3. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Again, no difference between the slave and that who we would deem as free. There is no difference between the two. Slaves are liberated to live in this way. In the flesh, they may have limited freedom. We might think that they have no freedom at all. Yet if the slave is a Christian, the slave is living for the Lord Christ. Apply that to our lives. Even ladies, we're just talking about submission in the previous text. And, 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 And thinking that according to our cultural standards, that may not appear as free. Yet if you're a Christian, this is the most freeing place to be. As God has designed it. This is profoundly radical. Precisely, I think, because it's the extreme case of slavery to which Paul addresses these words. We need to see how every obligation under which we labor, every obligation which we labor, every burden that life puts upon us, every pressure under which we are placed is transformed by the wonder of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You see that? Every aspect of our life should be transformed by the fact that Christ is our Lord in that situation. And Paul's talking about not doing this for men, but doing this for God. That's freedom. Like, before we were saved, we could only do these things for men. Now we get to do these tasks for God. And so every burden, every job, every requirement, everything from paying taxes... <laughs> to obeying our supervisor, to leading our family, to paying bills, to working uh, a hot, sweaty, 13-hour-a-day job, whatever it is, you do it, and it's, rede- it's, it's transformed from doing it for, by, for mere men to doing it for the Lordship of Christ. To see everything we do as for the Lordship of Christ. We are liberated by Christ, but not from those things. We're not liberated from those responsibilities. We're liberated to do everything in the name of Jesus. Do you see that? Like, my heart beats for that. Does yours? Like, I get to do this. I get to stand up here and preach for God. I get to do that. If I was not a follower of Jesus, I get to talk about these words for your purpose, for you. Instead, I get to do it for God. Alright, so we are free now to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We are free to work, not under grudging compulsion, but from the center of, of our being. Heartily, in this passage, uh, more literally means from the soul. From the soul. So from the soul, do everything for the Lord. So from the depths of who you are, everything you do is for the Lord. Now, 
for me, uh, just give you my experience, that makes things easier. For, it may make it harder for you. It makes it easier for me. Because when, so when I'm in that situation where I don't, where I really want to do what's not right, but I know I need to do that which is right. Fulfilling a commitment even though I'm tired. I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm doing this to bring honor to Him. I am free to do this to bring honor to Him. It's a no-brainer. Right? Is that a no-brainer for you? I hope it's a no-brainer. Do it for God. Next point. There should be an eternal perspective when it comes to our labors. Paul says to the slave, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. All right. We don't have time to, to connect all these points, but we go to where Paul in Philippians 2 talks about working out our salvation and how salvation is a process. Yes, we're justified in a moment where God saves us and we are justified and sealed in the Holy Spirit, but then begins this process. Paul talks about working out our salvation. This is where we're at. These labors are a part of that process. We're not earning our salvation, Right? But it's a natural outcome. Remember, out of a new heart flows new character, which flows new conduct. This is the new conduct, that we are keeping our commitments, that we are following through with what God has called us to follow through with. And Paul says that you will receive the inheritance as your reward. I think Paul clearly here in, in, in the, the, the feel of Scripture is that us keeping our commitments is reflective of someone who's saved. It's an outflow of that new heart. Your obedience is a natural flow from that new heart. And again, here, here's the deal, guys. We, we can go, a lot of us are going, okay, well, you know, my job, I, I'm obedient there. I get there when I'm supposed to, I, I leave when I'm supposed to, so on and so forth. We're talking about every aspect of life. Everywhere. Does it reflect that? And Paul says that there should be an eternal perspective when it comes to that. Again, the fact is that this extreme case of slavery, I think, is what intensifies Paul, Paul's point here. That slaves, by definition, were not normally rewarded for their work. So let's think about that. I mean, we, in our work, are all probably compensated. Again, that's why it's not just our financial earning commitments. But instead here, the motivation for much of what we do in life is the reward we hope to receive, right? The paycheck the satisfaction, the approval, the gratitude. So, let me think about a slave. Is the slave doing its work, its, I mean his or her work, for the purpose of gratitude, approval, financial gain? Is that what's happening? No. And this is the point, I think, where part of where the text challenges our ideas of liberty and autonomy and freedom. So the question is this, can a slave be redeemed from a life of rewardless effort? Or is he just stuck? Is it, is it only about financial rewards, approval, gratitude, or is it even anything about that as opposed to solely, explicitly, exclusively some other reward that's outside of this 
life. If it's the latter, that's the only way possible for the slave to be redeemed from this life of rewardless effort. Faith in Christ changes everything, even for a slave. Here I think we see what Paul meant at the beginning of the letter when he thanks God in verse 5. He says, he thanks God because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. God has qualified believers in Christ, including slaves, to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. Can we who live for so many pathetic rewards Learn from this word to the slaves in Colossae. I mean, I mean, think about this. What are we settling for? Settling in your job for a paycheck? Is that what you're doing all of that work all week long for? Is a stupid piece of paper? You're missing a very big picture here. Is this why you faithfully sacrifice for your husband and, and, and take care of what God has called you to take care of? Is, is it just to get his approval? Are you settling for his mere gratitude? Is that the reward that you seek? Because you're missing on so much. Paul says there's an inheritance that's an, that's an eternal inheritance that is a result of our obedience. <laughs> Stop settling for earthly rewards. That's what Paul would say. Is. We can share in the liberation from bondage to earthly reward. Of course, obviously, this reward is, we have to say, is undeserved, right? It's by grace. It's all of it's by grace. Our obedience happens because of the grace of God in our lives because He who began a good work will see it to completion. It's He who is living through us. It's all by grace, but it's nonetheless the most powerful and liberating motivation for living every part of the life well. I think may, this makes getting a task done uh, much easier. We look, why am I doing this? I'm doing this for God. I'm doing this for God. I'm doing this for God. He doesn't need me. He's chosen to use me. I'm doing this for God. It's not me working. It's Christ working through me to accomplish this task for God. I lead my family for God. I work hard at the church for God. I'm faithful in the grocery store for God. I'm faithful when I clean Dale Mateer's office for God. We do it for God. Again, not because he needs us, because he's chosen to use us. Your work is ultimately for the Lord. Colossians 3.24 He says, you are serving the Lord all this is summed up by saying explicitly what has been behind everything said to the slaves so far. You are serving the Lord Christ. Um, the TNIV is not my favorite translation, but I do like what it says here. I think it's a little closer. It says, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So, let's think about this for a moment. When you're doing these actions, and we've been kind of saying, okay, I'm going to do it for man or I'm going to do it for God. Paul just says, slave, everything you do is serving the Lord. And I think the question comes in, is it bringing honor to God or is it bringing dishonor to God? Is it bringing honor to the master or is it bringing dishonor to the master? Everything, you are serving Christ. I think this truth transforms a slave's life. He or she has become a slave of who? The Lord Christ. A servant 
of Christ. We are servants of Christ. We get to be servants of Christ. Whatever indignity, shame, or drudgery there was in being a slave, it can never be the same once you've received Christ. It must never be the same. The same is true for us. If you are redeemed by God, your servitude in every aspect of your life, your serving in every aspect of your life, cannot be the same. You are serving someone much greater. Every aspect. All believers ought to appreciate the fresh wonder of the fact that it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Does anybody else's heart just go, "Ah, I am serving Him. I'm serving Him. I'm serving Him. Because then if you know a little bit more about Scripture, you know that it's Him that's going to make the serving possible. And it's Him that's going to make the serving acceptable. And, and so then all I find myself is at some point in a, just being submissive to Him working through me. But even in the submission, I know it's only His grace that's given me the submission to submit to Him. And His working through my life. I'm working hard, but it's Him working through me. I mean, you see all that, right? Like it's all clear as mud, right? Uh, but God is, is yes, alright, I'm going to move on. Christ's reordering shows no partiality in the serving of consequences. Colossians 3.25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. You will answer, guys hear me, you will answer to him for wrongdoing. Those Church members who are not being held accountable in those churches that are, have drawn some false division between volunteer work and, and paid work. Those church members who are not serving faithfully, God will serve justice with no partiality. This must transform the quality of our service. Now, remember... Our earthly masters are also answerable to the same Lord Christ, and there is no partiality. So that supervisor that doesn't treat you fairly, whether a Christian or not, he will answer to God. You know what what that does for me practically? That means I don't have to jump on my supervisor every time he makes me mad. That means I don't have to point out all of his flaws. Now, there may be healthy communication in which we need to practice in order to help him, but, but it's ultimately God will hold him accountable. I don't have to seek retribution. I don't have to seek revenge. God will serve consequences with no partiality. So, um, again, being with Christ unites Being united with Christ changes everything. We have died with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ appears, we will appear with Him in glory. This changes everything. There is no partiality. This does not mean, though, we are taken out of the world or our obligations of life in this world in whatever situation we find ourselves. Instead, serving the Lord deepens. It does not lessen our obligations to those we serve in this world. So our relationship with God should deepen our obligations to those we serve in this world. Family, co-workers, tipping waitresses, (laughs) everything. So, Paul's last word here is to the masters. He says, treat those you oversee justly and fairly. Verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul is brief here, but remember that the brevity of this does not lighten the importance of it. Paul is concise, he's straight to the point. These earthly lords are powerful and must constrain the exercise of their power by justice and fairness. 
But remember, and if you look at your supervisor, well, he doesn't lead with justice and fairly. Paul does not say, slave, obey your master in everything until he's no longer just or fair. Does Paul give that exclusion? No, he doesn't. Everything. But understand that they will be held accountable for their lack of justice or their lack of fairness. So, back to the proposition as stated again. Could it be that there is a redemption and a freedom that is authentic and real, yet not dependent on the ideas of independence, liberty, and autonomy that seem to matter so much to us today? We were talking about, what have we been talking about this? A new heart. A heart that is now free to take off the sin of the world. A heart that is now free to put on the image of Christ. Now this heart is free to work in such a way that brings glory to the Lord. Right? We are free to work in this way. No longer does this heart work for only temporary monetary compensation. No longer does this heart work for the in, uh, ingenuous applause of selfish people who are only encouraged because they just want you to work more. Now let me say here for just a moment. We should be encouraging people. We should reward people for faithful service. This is not negating those things. We also should receive humbly, but receive those encouragements. God can encourage you, can reward you through other people. Do you, do you understand that? God can send someone your way that showers you with encouragement. And you should receive that humbly. Don't let your head get puffed up, but you receive that humbly going, you know, this is from God. God is working here, and, I, and God is, is humbling me and um, so this is not just a complete avoidance of all earthly rewards because God can reward us but Paul is talking about what are we ultimately doing it for you're ultimately your heart is beating to accomplish this task for God for your earth your heavenly inheritance so with that our heart now works for the eternal reward and inheritance with the saints. of. Let's talk let's, just for a moment and we're done. What is that reward? That reward is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth. That reward is the one who was before all things, and in him all things hold together. That reward is the head of the body, the church, that reward is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. That reward is that the one who in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. That's the reward. Paul talked about it in Colossians chapter 1. So, um, let's pray. And I, I want to encourage us this last thing. It's easy for us to, to go to the text and go, here's its application. We find one thing in our life that needs to change, and then we stop there. Let the text, let God's Word sift every area of your life. Because this one applies across the board. Let this sift your marriage. Let this sift the words that come out of your mouth. Let this sift your church, responsibilities and commitment. Let's just sift the place where you get compensated for your work. Paul says to the slave with a rewardless life that you are truly free and your freedom is because now it's not the way you define it as freedom in this world, but you are free now to do the tasks that this earth and that I have given you to do, you are free to do those in the name of the Lord. That's freedom that is not defined by our own notions of liberty and autonomy. That's God's freedom. Let's pray. Father, um, 
And it's so easy when it comes to the, the text. Uh, um, it's easy oftentimes to just disregard it and go, I, I, I've got this. I, and it's easy, Father, to just let the text apply to one area of our lives and to, to not let it go beyond it because it might touch that area of my life that is extra sensitive. It might touch that area of my life that I'm, I'm, I enjoy too much. And Father, um, I just pray that we would take this text, that you would show us where in our lives, even in these next moments, show us where at in our lives that, that we are failing to be obedient as you've called the slave to be obedient. And Father, help us to realize that we are slaves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that we do is in service to Him. So Father, as we sing this next song, um, Father, it's a song declaring, it's a song declaring that we have a desire, we want a desire for you to reign in our hearts, for you to reign in our lives, that you are great, that you are mighty, and we want our lives to be a living sacrifice. And Father, let us to sing these words, not with empty hearts, but from the depths of our soul. And Father, it's in your Son's name we pray.